Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 73, air date October 20th, 2015. And, you know, a carpenter gets uh, paid to, you know, make a house, right? Um, a mechanic gets paid to fix a car. But a scientist is supposed to expose the truth. So to me, whether I'm researching something on Ayurveda or at the molecular level, sharing this is just truth. And this is actually a picture of me, by the way, burning the South African flag on the steps of MIT when I was 17 years old because MIT had investments in South Africa. This is a picture of me challenging the president of MIT. Right, so that 17-year-old kid not only was an inventor, but he had a sense of social conscience. And that's a picture of me making sure when a friend of mine was jailed by the brutal Sri Lankan government that we got him out. And that's a picture of me at my MIT graduation because America had invaded Iraq, asking for, you know, demanding the U.S. get out of Iraq. Half of the audience booed me and the other half gave me a standing ovation. My point is this, that when you're into truth, you have to go all the way. It's not just you do it in one profession and then you go home and you do something else. So when all this stuff occurred with the email stuff, it took me a while to also put on my hat because all throughout my life, not only was I an inventor, but I was also fighting for other people's rights. You see at MIT, they had very few black students, very few women. I also made sure that they got more women, more black students coming in. But when the attacks took place on me, I had to now become an activist and not defend me, but I had to defend that 14-year-old boy who invented email. Do you understand what I'm saying? It had to be the exposition of that truth. So we created a site called Inventor of Email, and we started actually sharing the truth. And in fact, in the middle of this, we found, that's why I believe there's a God. I don't know about gurus and yogis, but I do believe in a God directly. We, one of my students found this document. This guy, David Crocker, who, by the way, was a pro-Raytheon guy, getting back to the corruption, he was acting as though he's some unbiased guy, he forgot in 1977 he wrote this document. Can you read it? Can you see this? I'll read it to you. It says, at this, so he's writing this in December 1977. When did I invent email? 1978. So he's writing, at this time, no attempt is being made to emulate the full-scale inter-organizational mail system. The fact that the system is intended for use in various contexts and by users of differing expertise makes it almost impossible to build such a system. You see, these old white guys, frankly, who were working with lots of funding, had concluded it was impossible to build email. But that 14-year-old boy didn't because I was literally working with these secretaries and my job was not to just exchange text messages. I wanted to free that secretary so they could move from the typewriter to the terminal. You understand what I'm saying? That's what email is. Email was a revolutionary force because it opened up computing to ordinary people. It wasn't just about sending messages around, but it broke this huge barrier. And these people thought it impossible because they never thought that a secretary could use a computer. Okay, And then after this came out, some of you may know who Noam Chomsky is. He's one of the biggest professors at MIT. He weighed in and he said, look, it's black and white who invented email. The facts are, in fact, black and white on many levels. 
Now, what's fascinating is um, about last year, this book comes out. It's called The Innovators. In the middle of this quote-unquote controversy, because frankly, there is no controversy, the facts, in fact, those in power sometimes create a controversy. This book comes out. I want you to look at this very carefully. I want to see what pattern you see. This book is about the innovators of the digital revolution. Okay? It's a book talking about who are the innovators. So what do you see in this book? These are the people that the book highlights. You know, that is that Shockley who invented the transistor. You see anything common about these pictures? Yeah. Even a white woman's also allowed, by the way. And you know who this guy is? He was a former president of MIT. His name is Vannevar Bush. He was the one who founded Raytheon. Interesting, right? So this book suddenly comes out praising all of these people. So the education I want you to leave with today, and then we're going to move on to the back to the future part. You see, you may have never heard of this term, but if you haven't, you will today. It's called the military academic industrial complex. Have you ever heard of this? Okay, when President Eisenhower left office in 1960, he warned the world. He said, this is the President of the United States. He said, you must be extremely concerned, and there's a dangerous force building in the world. He said, it's a military academic industrial complex. And what he was talking about was this. He was talking about the Pentagon, one part of this, big institutions, major institutions, including MIT, and then the other part of those huge industries. And he said this triangle is a huge threat to humanity. And why did he say that? He was saying that this triangle tries to own innovation. You see, innovation is a trillion-dollar industry. And in that triangle, you'll find, essentially, them telling us what's an innovation. That anything that comes out of that triangle is an innovation. You see, when I, when I was at MIT, I was on the front page of MIT three times because I was a good minority. You see what I'm saying? A good worker. Meaning, when I invented email, when I uh, uh, did Cytosoft System Cell, I'm on the front page. But the picture of this boy cannot be in that triangle, right? because you break the, the, the narrative, because the innovation there was done outside of that triangle. It was done before MIT. Are you following me? So you need to understand this. So as you unravel the story, a beautiful education comes out of it that you realize that what occurred to us as Indians, what occurred to that 14-year-old boy, was something much more deeper. Uh, if you haven't seen this movie, by the way, you should get a copy of it and you should see it. It's called The Inside Job. It's by a guy called Charles Ferguson. You know, in 2009, the entire economy crashed in the United States. Are you guys aware of that? And what happened was this professor, in this, in this movie, he brings, he interviews this professor. And I'll tell you who he is shortly, but he writes, that professor wrote this beautiful scientific article. Can you read it? It says, Financial Stability in Iceland. Everyone know where Iceland is? Okay, so Iceland is, and what happened was because of his, this professor's writing of this article, billions of dollars got invested in Iceland. And what happened? Iceland collapsed. The economy was very unstable. In fact, this collapse took place two months after this article came. And it turns out in this movie, 
this professor got paid by the Icelandic government to write this paper. Okay? So the movie is about how academics, those in power, get paid to write history, get paid to do science. Another example is this. You know, for 50 years, we were told that smoking was good for you. Scientists were actually paid. In fact, this is an article called The Golden Holocaust. It talks about for 50 years how federal funding went to institutions. Those institutions did research to show that smoking was good. And then the other example is Galileo, right? Everyone know the story of Galileo? He had clear evidence the sun was the center of the universe. And what happened? He was vilified and thrown in prison. And it was only in 1992 did the Catholic Church say that they were sorry, that the sun is, in fact, the center of the solar system, right? So the point I'm making in all of this is that when you start looking at when you start looking at all of this, you start seeing that there's the actual apparent truth of what takes place, and then there's a history that's written. And we as students, part of your education, needs to start recognizing this. So for me, the facts are that a 14-year-old boy invented email. And when you start looking at other facts, and I'm going to move a little bit into talking about some of the recent research. When you start looking at the fact that when you start looking at some of the great innovations that came out of India, if you start looking at our medical systems, if you start looking at our agrarian systems, our mathematics, you start finding something very interesting. Now, this curve, if you look at it very closely, the left side is the amount of R&D spending that the United States does on drugs, trying to find new medicines. Do you see that curve? It goes up. Can you see it in the back? But what you find is every year that they spend money, what do you find? Less and less new drugs are being found. So the entire US medical pharmaceutical system is not working. The other thing you find, I want you to look at this curve is, everyone heard about the Human Genome Project? Yes? Have you studied that? OK, you know DNA? We all have DNA, right? So in, 19, in the mid-90s, one of the big projects was could we understand how many genes we have? Do you know what a gene is? A gene is a characteristic. There's a gene for blue eyes. There's a gene if you have brown skin. So in the mid-90s, we started sequencing the human genome. Now, you have a human, and then you have a worm. Now, do you think of, who do you think has more genes, a worm or a human? A human? Right, so if you look at this curve, they thought that, that a human being had about 100,000 genes and a worm had about 20,000 genes. And what ends up happening is when the genome project ends, it turns out we have the same number of genes as a worm. Okay, so us and worms have the same number of genes, so that made people realize, wait a minute, maybe who we are is not the number of genes, and that led to this new field called systems biology. Systems biology said that if you're going to understand the whole human being, which is the right side of that diagram, you could understand the number of organs, the number of proteins, that you could actually sequence this together. Okay, that was a new field called systems biology, which said you cannot just look at a part, you need to look at the whole. And so in 2003, when I came back to MIT to do my PhD, one of the challenges was, could you look at the whole human cell and mathematically model it? You have about 10 trillion cells in your body. Every day, 10 billion cells are created, and 10 billion cells die. But each cell is like a factory, okay? It has thousands of molecular reactions. And the idea was if you could model mathematically the human cell, 
well, then we could create medicines faster and cheaper without killing animals. Today, you know, they find a drug, then they test it in a test tube, then they kill a bunch of animals. That takes about six years, and if that works, then they get the rights to go to human testing. That takes another nine years. Today, it takes $5 billion and 15 years to create one drug, and then that drug has lots of side effects. This is the Western methodology of creating a drug. So what we did was we actually created a technology which could take those molecular pathways. Uh, anyone take chemistry here? No chemists here? Okay. But if you took chemistry when you were in high school, you would remember, you did, um, that you have these reactions. So what's happening in biology, those reactions are becoming software programs. And what we did was we found a way to connect these reactions together, and we call this cytosol. So if email was the electronic version of the human cell, cytosol is the electronic version, I mean, if email was the electronic version of the office, cytosol is the electronic version of the human cell. So that's what we did. We wrote many papers on it. And one of the things that happened was in 2012, Nature wrote this interesting paper on combination drugs. You see, today, if you, unfortunately, knock on wood, no one here gets cancer. If you get cancer, they typically give you a drug, one drug. It's, it's called chemotherapy. But this paper is saying we can't just give one drug. We need to do combinations, combination therapy. And in fact, we're the only ones cited in there. Now, if you look at this image, which some of you may have seen, in the Indian tradition, the yogi or the siddha, what did he do? Like my grandmother, they would look at you, and they would put together combinations of drugs. Curry, for example, is a combination, right? It's manjo, pepper, cardamom right? It's a mixture. And the, re the reason our ancient siddhas did this was they knew that if you just give one, it could cause side effects. So you could e either give this much haldi or you could give this much haldi and mix it with the other things. That mixing is called combination therapy. Now this is part of what we did as Indians long before this article needed to come out in nature in 2012. We were doing this for 5,000 years. Yeah, you should clap. Yeah. So... So part of, part of what happened, you see, this is an innovation. The problem is that we forgot what they were doing. We didn't understand the language on what they did. This is an Indian innovation on how they did this. So when the British, as I was speaking to the young school, when the British came to India, they did two things. Not only did they rape our country, but they also changed the history, saying that we weren't innovators, that a guy doing this, oh, he's just in some dhoti, he's just doing something, right? They had to demean this. You follow what I'm saying? You understand? They had to not only take away stuff from India, but they also had to put down who was an innovator. You couldn't like, that's an innovator. You had to have glasses. You had to have a collared shirt. You had to look like Isaac Newton, and then you were an innovator. Okay, so they, they brainwashed all of you. So you think Steve Jobs is the only innovator. Right? So you think Isaac Newton's the only innovator. But you would never consider that person an innovator. So what we've done is part of my mission. Remember, I, was, I wanted to do what my grandmother did. So what we were able to do now is, with Cytosol, this technology we created, uh, anyone heard of inflammation? Okay. Inflammation is a source of most diseases. Inflammation likely causes cancer. What you're seeing here is we looked at 6,000 scientific papers and we found all the molecular we could 
find where inflammation is involved relative to manjal or curcumin, haldi. Okay? So this is from the known science where haldi interacts with all those reactions. So we actually have mathematically modeled it, and we can show that when you take haldi, it reduces inflammation. But now remember, you want to do combination. Suppose you want to mix haldi with some grapes. You know, red wine has an active ingredient called resveratrol, which actually is also known to uh, lower inflammation. So what we're able to do is we're able to be like that siddhar. We're mixing haldi with some grapes. Everyone see that? And now what we're able to do, and I want you to follow along, it's very interesting, we're actually able to do mathematical experiments. So, so if you look at when you have inflammation in your body, there's a certain chemical that's very high. So what you're seeing in this diagram is on the far right, if you look in the far right, the third column, you see 0.15. Everyone see that? 0.15 means you have inflammation. I'm not giving any haldi, I'm not giving any grapes. In the second experiment, you notice I just add haldi. You see it comes down from 0.15 to 0.05. In the third experiment, I just add grapes. It comes down from 0.15 to 0.06. But look what I'm doing in the fourth experiment, which I'm going to highlight. I'm giving, I'm reducing the amount of haldi, or manjul, and I'm reducing the amount of grapes. But what do you see? It goes down to 0.03, even 200% better. This is called the synergistic effect. So our ancient Siddhas and our Ayurveda people, they knew how to do combinations. And based on those combinations, they passed that on into our food system. So our traditional food system is actually medicine. This is why Indians, I don't know if you know this, the number one cause of death in all of Asia is liver cancer, meaning China, India, Indonesia, Malaysia. Indians have one-third less liver cancer. And that's because of the manjula and this combination of curry that we eat. So you should be thankful about that. So you don't need to take these. Yeah, you should, you should clap. <laughs> the, 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 the point is that our great siddhars were innovating all these formulations from thousands and thousands and thousands of years of innovation, not killing an animal in a test tube, right, and pushing it through the FDA. Now, what we did was no one would believe our stuff worked, so we took on, we actually used this technology to mathematically model pancreatic cancer, which is a very deadly disease. We found two combinations of Western drugs that did better than one, and this is the formal notice we got from the FDA to go to clinical trials. So it's huge, because what we've done is we've, we've shown, and that's cytosol, so bottom line is I'm very, I feel very fortunate because after so many years, we've actually taken our education, created a Western technology that's validating our Eastern systems. And that we don't need to validate, but if we can do this to all of us who've been brainwashed, we can at least stop the brainwashing to validate what did work, in fact, does work. Now I want to turn to a different subject, which is related to this, because remember I talked to you about how Science can be used to manipulate people, right? Everyone know what GMOs are? How many people know what GMOs are? Wow, only two people. Well, you're gonna, you better know what GMOs are after this talk. GMOs are genetically modified foods, genetically engineered organisms, okay? 
what is happening in the world right now is that I can take a plant, let's say like uh, brinjal or corn, I can take the genome out of it, and I can insert a new gene into it. So, for example, I could take someone who wants blue eyes, I can insert a gene and give you blue eyes if I want to, okay? That's called genetic engineering of foods, which are called genetically modified organisms. Now, you know what it is? So, GMO is a genetically modified organism. What's going on in the United States is 94% of the soybeans, 90% of the corn, 90% of the cotton is GMO. The reason that they're doing this is because there's a company called Monsanto, which is owning, which is patenting the seeds, okay? So they're taking a seed, they do a genetic modification, and then they patent it. And then if you or you or you are farmers and you buy my seed, for every seed you buy, you have to pay me a licensing fee. Are you following this? Just like I sell you a piece of software, every seed, I license it to you. So there's a huge concern about this, which means that one or two companies are going to own every seed that's planted in the world. Now, what does it mean to you? The issue is, okay, that's fine, but does the genetic modification hurt your health? So this is an article in the MIT Technology Review saying, oh, GMOs are absolutely safe. In the United States right now, there's a huge debate. Should you be pro or anti-GMO? In fact, this is an ad, or it's a front page, saying uh, people dancing around a GMO corn. Okay, saying it's great. But then there's other people getting very concerned that GMOs may be bad. So what we did was, when I looked at this as a scientist, I didn't take a pro or anti-GMO debate. We wanted to really find what was going on. So we said, is there a difference, right? If you do a genetic insertion, is there a difference between the tomato on the left and the tomato on the right? Just like, is there a difference between the Hulk and David Banner, right? So the way that they determined this difference is in the 1970s, the United States passed a law called substantial equivalence. What that meant is if you have a, and it was done for medical products, let's say you created a medical product, a pacemaker today, and then a few months later, you made some small modification. Maybe you changed the color. But when you did the first uh, pacemaker, it made you take it seven years to get allowed. When you did the second modification, you didn't want to wait another seven years. So they said if it was equivalent, it was about the same, then you can get it through. That was done for medical products. So uh, when it came to GMOs, they decided we'll use that same law for genetically modified foods. But remember, a biological organism has hundreds of thousands of parts, not just 10 parts. So this was put into law. And what now happens in the US is if you make a genetic modification, if you say that the apple smells the same, tastes the same, then it's allowed. You don't even have to do testing. Okay. So part of what's going on in India right now is a big GMO manufacturers, they want to bring GMOs into India. Why? Because India has 1.2 billion people. It's a huge market. So there's a lot of propaganda being run about why India needs GMOs. So what we did was we used Cytosol. We wanted to find out, are GMOs different? And if you look on the web, we just published these four papers. And what we did was we took soybeans. Anyone eat soybeans here? 
Okay, India has no GMO soybeans. 94% of soybeans in America are GMO. And Monsanto would love to make all the soybeans in India GMO. And what we did was we looked at soybeans. We went through 6,837 experiments in 184 institutions. And we found out there was a major difference. We found out that GMO has formaldehyde. Everyone know what formaldehyde is? And it depletes glutathione. Glutathione is a very nutritious thing. And what we found was on the left curve, in the non-GMO, formaldehyde is produced and is detoxified to near zero levels. On the right side, you see formaldehyde accumulates. You see the difference? Can everyone see it back there? So there's a big difference. Meanwhile, the propaganda is there is no difference. And the same thing here. Glutathione levels are normal, and then in the GMO, they drop. So what I'm trying to say is here's an example of where we've used the technology to help uncover something that the media in the U.S. is confusing people on. Fortunately, in India, the, science, the scientists so far are very smart about introducing GMOs. The last thing I want to talk to you about is this is what systems biology is, okay? The Western world understands a human body by genes, molecules, protein. Now, our Siddhars had a very different way of looking at the world. So this is this pyramid, which is the West. This is the right. How many people know what Siddha and Ayurveda are? Anyone? Few people. Okay. More people. But if you study Siddha and Ayurveda, they have a whole language. They say the world was created by, there was nothingness, which is Purusha, that gave rise to Prakriti, which gave rise to the Gunas, which then gave rise to the Panchabhutas, which were the metals, five elements, which then gave rise to the Tridoshas, which are essentially Vat, Pit, and Kaf. And then those gave rise to the tissues, which gave rise to the human body. Now, when we start learning Western science, we look at these words and we think, oh, this is just, you know, this is like some nonsense they wrote. And in fact, when an Ayurvedic physician looks at you, they look at your body, they may look at your face, they may read your nadi, and then they decide which dosha are you, vata or pitta, vata, pitta, kapha, right? And based on that, then they decide how you unbalanced yourself from there, and they decide what are the right foods you need, what are the right supplements, what are the right exercises. You see, it was a very powerful system, but if you look at this, you think it's just some words. So when I came back on my Fulbright in 2007, that's again uh, me on the front page of MIT saying, you know, they were surprised. Why would this Indian guy who's got all these degrees want to go back to India to study this ancient form of medicine? But what I discovered, this was a paper we recently published, was that Siddha and Ayurveda, the, all the terminology that's used matches one-to-one -one with modern systems theory. So if you look at this, what you see here is, you've heard of the word input, right? Input and output into a system. If you think about a computer, you input stuff, you get output back. That's a system. You have transport of information, the CPU converts information, and, and the memory stores information, that's storage. If you look at all of these terms, they match one-to-one -one with our SIDDA system. Karma actually is action, input. So this is a huge discovery we came up with. It's a breakthrough because what it shows is the entire system of Indian medicine has a core scientific foundation. And what we've done out of that, we've actually created a new 
educational company and, a, and an app where you, you it'll ask you certain set of questions and it'll determine your prakriti or your natural system state, which is that red dot. Then it'll ask you a different set of questions and it'll determine the black dot, which is your deviation. Very much like how these siddhas and yogis did. And then it will tell you particular foods you should eat, particular supplements you should take, very much like what my grandmother did. We've essentially created a way that we can help anyone understand this now. And we've put it into an educational institution called Systems Health. So for me, the two things we've taken, the Siddha tradition of combination therapy, that has now come up with Cytosol. We've taken our Ayurvedic system and we've come up with Systems Health. Both of these are done basically to go back to the future. Okay, because if you start really looking at it, we, India doesn't need to adopt GMOs. The modern healthcare system is very good after you get hurt, after you get in an accident, God forbid, right? After you get a disease, because most of the modern Western healthcare system came from war, after it was designed for killing people. The modern agricultural system actually came from pesticides, also designed for war. You see, our systems of innovation actually came from what? Healing. They were done to heal people. So we're at a very interesting point, and you as leaders can determine this, because do you blindly want to follow the Western leaders of innovation, or do you want to look back into your own future? We don't need to look to the West. We just need to look about 300 years before, and you'll find the right models of innovation. Because at the end of the day, you may have heard this world called entrepreneur, right? I know Coimbatore is a rich center of entrepreneurialism. You have lots of small businesses. Where does this word come from? Anyone know? Where do you think the word comes from? Louder, anyone? You heard the word, right? I think it was mentioned probably 100 times in, in, the, in the Prime Minister's speech. Well, everyone typically thinks, once again, it comes from French. That's where they think it comes from. But let me tell you where it really comes from. It comes from Antaprerana. It's a thousand years old. It comes from the Upanishads. Okay, and what this word means, it means driven by insight. And I'll read you one of the shlokas from it. It says, you are what your deep driving desire is. You are what your deep driving desire is. As your desire is, so is your will. As your will is, so is your deed, and as your deed is, so is your destiny. You see, this comes from our tradition. So if you go back to the future, you actually find out we have all the models of innovation. You know, we need to unbrainwash ourselves. You know, we can create innovation centers, we can put money in, you can have all your classes on innovation, but if you think that Bill Gates, Isaac Newton, Steve Jobs are your models of innovation and you forget that a 14-year-old boy invented email, that J.C. Bose invented radio, that Adiabatha did elliptical orbits, you're never going to innovate because you're going to not understand who you are. And we need to understand who we are. Because where we are is within ourselves. We can go within ourselves. We can go within to our own heritage. And that's where we're going to find innovation. That's where we're going to find entrepreneurialism. So we need to go back to the future. Thank you.
sir. Now we have a question round session for you. Sir. You sure? Good afternoon, sir. Good afternoon. I'm Ms. Bell from First MIB. Put, put, the, put the microphone closer. I'm Ms. Bell from First MIB. My question to you is, first was mail, then came email. So what do you think will be in the future? So the question is, what will be the future of email? Yeah. After email, what will be? Oh, good question. So first of all, so everyone understands where email came from now, right? It came from where? The inter-office mail system, right? So the inter-office mail system was what? For business use, right? Now you have to understand that many people have been saying email is going to die. You've probably heard things about that, right? Email is dead. Since, 19, since 1978, people have said email is going to die. And I just wrote an article for the Wall Street Journal saying email, as long as there is businesses, there will be email. Now, why do I say that? Um, if you look at it, there are really three types of electronic communication or communication between humans. One is short messaging. If you go back to the history of short messaging, you know, there was a time when people beat drums. They did smoke signals. You remember sometimes you did little sticky notes? You know what I'm saying? Small index cards. You, or Twitter or text messaging. That's in the history of short messaging. The second one is community messaging. If you go back to caveman times or cavewoman times, on big cave paintings, communities like all of us, if we were one tribe, we would put paint on our hands and then we'd put it up on the walls. That was really the face, first Facebook or handbook. Okay? That was community messaging. There's some part of humans which like to communicate through the community. Then we did bulletin boards. I'm sure you have bulletin boards here where you put notices. And that's today the blogs and the Facebook posts. You see, that's community messaging. But if you look at email, email comes from the origin of business communication. At times, many thousands of years ago, we had papyrus where we communicate commerce. And that became the letter. Right? That became email. So as long as there's businesses, there will be this process of email. So what, what got confusing is whenever people say, what's the future of email? First, you have to understand right now, we have actually these three streams of communication. Some of you may send, if you, if you have to work in a company, like a formal company, they're not going to allow you to chat back and forth. You're going to have to use email because it's legal, it's formal, it's business. You may chat with people, so text messaging, you may use for your friends, informal, and then you're going to use Facebook more for advertising and social media. So the point is that email is going to continue on its own path as a part of these other two medium. But what, what is going to happen to email is we're going to go back to the future with that also. Remember in the old days, the boss would sit here and he would dictate to the secretary? Well, what's happened now is we've all become secretaries. Before the secretary would do the sorting, the inbox, outbox, and do all the writing. Now we all do that. In fact, 35% of CEOs, they're on email. So one of the things I believe is going to happen is more and more artificial intelligence is going to get added to email. So you could talk to it. It'll write up a letter. It'll do more sorting for you. So you could spend less time on email. You could actually be the boss again. And the, and the email platform is going to become like the secretary. That's my prediction. 
because that's going back to the future again. Thank you, sir. Yeah. Good afternoon, sir. Good afternoon. Hi, sir. First time I meet. My question to you is, from Mumbai to New Jersey, could you please differentiate the educational systems you're doing here? Yeah, so the question is, what is the educational uh, difference between Mumbai and New Jersey, yeah. right? Uh, you know, I get this question asked a lot, okay? And typically, I know the, here, here's a general answer, which has some truth to it. One, one point is in the Indian system, you are taught in a very precise way, and you have to what they people call mug up stuff, right? Right, that's what I've heard, right? Um, and then the the thought is, well, in the U.S., you don't have to do that as much, and some some part of that's true also. But the reality is this: both systems are actually getting somewhat similar. Let me explain what I mean. Whenever money gets involved in education, and your entrance into universities as a function of money both things start getting sort of polluted. So even in the U.S. now, in the 70s or 80s, was the height of public school education. So I want to say this because you want to make sure you give credit to India, too. You see, when my father went to college here, my father's knowledge, like he went to Anamalai University, his concepts of mathematics, physics are phenomenal. So I believe there was a period in the Indian educational system where fundamentals were taught really, really well. I don't know what the situation is today, but I know in that time it was. And I still think in most Indian engineering colleges, fundamentals are taught quite well. In the US, what's happening is in the 70s, public school teachers were very dedicated. And they went all out. But what's happened in the US now is things have changed a lot. Public school teachers don't get paid anything. <laughs> you know. Only the wealthy can afford tutors and consultants. So they'll also mug up stuff. So today, if you're a wealthy kid, there's a lot of dumb kids getting into smart colleges. And there's a lot of smart kids who don't get into college. Because their parents will hire tutors. They'll, in fact, get tutors to help them write their essays. Everything is a formula. So I would say that it's a very tough situation in the world right now because teachers do not get the respect that they do. So in, in, in Bombay, I think I was fortunate to have some good teachers. I know my parents were. Sometimes they were not. So really, it's not the educational system. It's how much you pay a teacher, frankly. So if you pay the teachers well, whether it's India or here, you're going to get a different educational system. In fact, I think I read in the newspaper that India is planning on really increasing the, the wage for teachers. I don't know if that's true. But fundamentally, I would say that at my time, I was very fortunate, you know, in India as well as in the United States. But things are changing on the world right now. I hope that answers your question. You have a follow-up? Yeah. Okay. Good afternoon, sir. Good afternoon. Ronald from First MIB. My question to you is, at the age where everyone takes up sports, what inspired you to invent email? What, what's, so why did I... At the age where everyone takes up sports, oh, oh. what inspired you to invent email? Oh, so the question is, why, if, if, at, the, at an age when other people are playing, playing sports, why did I want to do email? Well, look, if, if uh, so let me ask you, do you think, I mean, I'm going to ask, do you think there's a difference between an athlete and a, and a kid who likes to do math? Do you think that you can't be good? Do you think it's impossible to be a great athlete and to be a great mathematician? 
Right? So, so it's, it's a good question you're asking because what's happened is, you know, I have, I've noticed that people think, oh, you're good at this, therefore you cannot be good at this. Right? And so they put you into these little um, silos. Okay? Oh, you, and in fact, I noticed it in a company that I have a guy who will do Java programming, won't want to do C programming. <laughs> And he won't want to, you know what I'm saying? So part of one of the models of making you a good worker, remember the British wanted to make you good workers. Remember the caste system? You do this, you stay in that. You'll be a cobbler for the rest of your life. You're an athlete, you just be an athlete. You can't be a mathematician. When the reality is human beings can do many things. I mean, we're, we're not that different than gorillas, okay? We have like one in a thousand different base pair differences. But among humans, there's not that much difference relatively. So part of what's the brainwashing that's happened is, oh, you can only do this and you can't do that. So the, the answer to your question is, I never thought it different. You know, I did play sports. In fact, I could have been a professional baseball player. I did play sports. I played soccer, baseball, and I invented email. And I burned flags on the steps of MIT. See what I'm saying? So... We need to realize that we should be renaissance people, okay? We're supposed to do many things. And when you start doing many things, your brain actually starts seeing connections. So the thing is, I never thought of myself, when others were doing it, why did I do email? Thank you, sir. Yeah, you're welcome. Good question. Sir, we have a rapid-fire round for you, sir. Oh, okay. We request you to answer in a word or a line. All right. Is this what you do with everyone? Yes. <laughs> All right, you seem very good at this. Sir, if you could have an unlimited storage of one thing, what would it be? An unlimited storage? storage of what do you mean? Thing. Like uh, knowledge or you have uh, the messages, anything. Unlimited storage of one thing. Oh, oh, you're saying if I could store something. Yes. A one thing. Wow, that's a tough one. Hmm. Probably uh, uh, artwork, paintings, you know? Yeah. So what would you give more importance to, medicine or media? The uh, question is, what would I give more importance to, medicine or media? Well, they're so closely linked, you know, so it doesn't matter. I'd probably take medicine. Yeah. So tag yourself, Dr. APJ Abdul Kalam, the Missile Man of India. Dr. V.A. Shiva Ayodhare is? The inventor of email. <laughs> React in one word to the following. Echo mail. Intelligent email analysis. Oh, one word? Uh, intelligence. Fran Drescher. What is that? Fran Drescher. Fran Drescher. Hilarious. <laughs> Google. Who? Google. Google, uh, ubiquitous. Email, uh, revolutionary. Wikipedia, questionable. <laughs> Sir, what is your favorite tool of invention? What is my favorite tool of invention? I would have to say the pen. 
the pen, you know, writing. Sir, if you were to hack into someone's server, whose would it be? Hmm, that's a good one. <laughs> anyone server? Anyone I could hack into? Anyone. Well, that's a tough one. Do I have to answer that? Yes. <laughs> I would probably say uh, I have to be the CIA. Yeah. Sir, is there someone's mail you're waiting for? If so, whose would it be? Oh, whose email would it be? Yeah. Suppose I said I'm not waiting. For <laughs> <laughs> um, I would say, oh, I, I would probably say yes. Can it be from an old person or someone alive right now? Anyone, sir. Oh, okay. I think it would be very interesting to get a, an email from someone like Agastya. You know, the guy who founded Siddha. Yeah. So who would you like to exchange rules with for a day? For a day? Probably be an athlete. You know, probably be a baseball player or, or probably a baseball player. I don't know who, though. Sir, among all the movies and daily soaps done by Ma'am Frank Drescher, which one catches your eye? Uh, it has to be the nanny. Yeah. Do you, have you seen it? How many people have seen the nanny here? Anyone? I, I, yeah, because you've seen it. You're a little more westernized, huh? <laughs> Sir, can That's you good. tell where your birthplace is? Where it is? Bombay. Mumbai. So, one line for GRD in Tamil. GRD in Tamil? Um, you're testing me now. Uh, you have to do one line or one sentence? One line oh. or sentence. Rombanala University? Is that good? <laughs> now, we have Viveka Priyadarshini to felicitate sir with a memento. Okay. But that was tough. You guys are very Thank good. For the best tweet awards, uh, students can still keep tweeting for another uh, for another hour. Right. Uh, uh, sir would give away the best tweet award and he will be choosing it. So the tweeting is open for another hour. What we're going to do is, could you bring up that other image? You know, we are, um, one of the things that on August 30th in Delhi, um, the Digital India Foundation is actually going to host a very special event on called Email at 33, where we're going to do a discussion about uh, the origin of email and what it means to the future and how Indians can help innovate it. But that image that you have of that 14-year-old boy, we're actually making it some t-shirts. So whoever has the best tweet will get a t-shirt. So um, I'll be letting people know about that through Dr. Ram here. Thank you. We would like to thank you, sir.
for enlightening us on India innovation and inspiring the young GRDians. We would also like to thank our director who, for giving us this opportunity to witness the inventor of email and system scientists. We would also like to thank the organizers and the media team for their constant support. Last but not the least, to all you wonderful people here for being such a wonderful crowd. Thank you, sir. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you very much.